Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. We started working together when you came to some evening classes that I offered mm -hmm. on mindfulness for clinicians. That's right. Yeah. And Pat's uh, come to Center of Gravity. She's on the board of Center of Gravity. She's been a friend and also um, she took the 10 month um, mindfulness for clinicians course, I think the first year that I offered it, mm -hmm. and also has been in the mentorship program with. Uh, small parts of myself, but mostly with Norman Feldman and Molly Swan. Mm -hmm. So maybe to start, Pat, you could talk about what you do and how you ended up doing what you do. Sure. So I'm a physician. I um, have been a physician. I graduated from medical school in 1982. And it was my second uh, career. I was a social worker before I went into medicine. And I went into medicine because I was really committed to women's health in a sort of um, big picture way, specifically in reproductive rights. And I did a residency in family medicine and I practiced as a family doctor for about, um, I guess, five years. And at that time I had lots of friends who were politically active in the reproductive rights movement and they put a lot of um, pressure on me to I guess in a way put my money where my mouth was to really become active as a physician in reproductive rights. And so I became an abortion provider at that time. And I worked one half day a week and did abortions at a clinic in Toronto and did family medicine. And gradually I increased the amount of uh, abortion work that I did and eventually gave up um, my practice as a family doctor. So I've been doing abortions only for almost 22 years. I work at um, several sites, large academic hospital, small community hospital, community clinic, and I do really primarily that. I do some other reproductive family planning kind of work. I do political work, but mostly as a clinician, I'm an abortion provider. When I hear about your biography, in terms of its history, the way you talk about the early years sounds political. Um, so one of the themes when we talk about ethics, which is the subject of this course, is the relationship between uh, how we are in the world, um, our belief system, how we act, how we think, our values. Mm -hmm. 
Um, could you talk a little bit about um, entering the world that you're in first through the political door mm -hmm. um, and how that may have changed over, over time? Sure. You know, lots of people, I think, um, have their work and their politics separate. They, they do political work, they do the kind of um, social justice work separate from their work. Um, and I really feel that it's been a privilege for me to be able to do both in one. It's both political and it's the way I make my living. But it did begin solely as a, really a commitment to a political idea. Um, the notion that women um, had a right and a capacity to make decisions about their own reproductive health. And it, it simply was a political commitment. It wasn't particularly that I thought it would be an interesting clinical area to work in. It actually turned out over a period of years that that, that was, um, luckily, it was, both, it was also clinically interesting and challenging, but it really started out for me as an opportunity to really provide women with a service that I thought was really politically important, um, had been, you know, as a social worker, it had been important to me. But, you know, when I first started, I, did, I trained with uh, Dr. Morgenthaler, and it was at the time that he was um, arrested um, here in Toronto, and a group of us who at the time really had no intention of actually providing, agreed that we would train and do a press conference and say, you can arrest Dr. Morgenthaler, but I will be there. And then the next person said, you can arrest Pat, and I will be there. And so it was really a, really a way to support the sort of pioneering work that Dr. Morgenthaler did, mm -hmm. that, uh, that I really got started. So I did training then, and... Um, but really, I didn't intend to do it. But, well, I did. In the long mm -hmm. run, the, you know, the call, the pressure from my friends and colleagues was enough that I really realized that it wasn't just going to be enough anymore to talk about my ideals. But mm -hmm. I had a skill, I had a capacity mm -hmm. to put that into action. And, and so that's, that's how I did that. Mm -hmm. um, was there a difference? from having a kind of political ideology, this is right, this is what should be done, this is what women need to have, mm -hmm. and actually being there in the room with that particular woman. How have you negotiated that? Because sometimes, you know, like I said earlier, you know, there's a sense of, you know, these are my politics, this is what I believe in. And sometimes as an activist, as a politician, as anybody with a belief system, we can have this idea, this is what women should have, mm -hmm. and kind of not even see the woman mm -hmm. who's right there in front of you. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering how, yeah. how that's come into your You know, it's, that's experience. probably affected me in a couple of ways. One is, um, maybe I'll speak about the second one first, and that is coming face to face with the reality of the lives that women lead. Hearing their stories, you know, over and over again, all of them unique, even though there may be similarities, all of them unique, made the reason for doing this more 
humane, more human, more, I felt much more of an imperative to do it and it's why I've continued. On the other hand, as a political ideology, as an idea that women have the right to do this, I hadn't necessarily considered what it would be physically like to terminate a pregnancy, to look at the products of conception and recognize the human face of that. I had thought of it always as, you know, some blood and tissue. I hadn't, mm -hmm. I hadn't really conceptualized. I, I thought a lot about the woman, but I hadn't thought a lot about the reality of doing the work. Mm -hmm. And it was shocking. I mean, it was really shocking the first, um, the first well, for, for a long time, it was shocking that I was, yes, helping an individual woman in a situation and conditions that you know, required her to make this decision. And in order to do that, I was terminating a life, not, mm -hmm. you know, terminating a pregnancy is kind of easy mm -hmm. language to mm -hmm. talk about mm -hmm. it, but it's, it's a life, it's a potential human being. Mm -hmm. And so that was, I mean, it was shocking and it was difficult. Now, I can't say that it ever made me think, I don't want to do this. So mm -hmm. it, it didn't, it wasn't, I didn't think, oh my God, I didn't know it was this. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought it was that, not this. I always knew it was this. But it really, it required me to be thoughtful about it, to talk with folks about it, and to talk about the reality of, you know, the fact that, you know, all of my medical, medical training had been toward making people better, mm -hmm. saving lives, not mm -hmm. ending lives. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so that it didn't, it didn't ever shake my belief that I should be doing it. But it, I did have to you know, acknowledge and then work with the feelings that came mm -hmm. up um, in the beginning. I'm not so good at math. Mm -hmm. You might be better We're than a pair. I <laughs> We're a pair then. <laughs> How many abortions do you do a day? Now. Yeah, probably on average I do 18 to 20 abortions a day. Occasionally I do significantly more than that and sometimes less. So how many a week do you think? Um, well, probably between 80 and 100, depending on how many days I work in a week. Uh -huh. So. So sometimes if, around 2,500 a year. 2,500 a year. Mm -hmm. And if we multiply that by... Like 20. So... Two. <laughs> 22. Yeah. That's intense. It is. It so is. that's a lot of saving and a lot of killing. Yep. Yeah, it is. It's... And there's interesting things to be said about that. I mean, the reasons to do it are no less compelling now than they mm -hmm. were um, when I started. They're, um, they're easier in some ways that I've come to understand that women and how they, what their process of decision making mm -hmm. is and to understand you know, that conditions are there that, mm -hmm. that cause a woman to, and a family, it's not always, mm -hmm. you know, I deal um, 
with women as my patients, but they make their decisions in the context of a family or a relationship um, or not. Many mm -hmm. women make the decision by themselves. Um, but I've come to understand that, um, what that process is like and, and how um, you know, intimately I know the kinds of lives that many, many women lead. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hard, mm -hmm. hard lives. A lot of people have an idea that, you know, most of the people who are coming in getting abortions weren't practicing with any kind of contraception mm -hmm. or um, um, there was kind of, you know, unforeseen circumstances that led them to this day that they're in your office. Mm -hmm. Is that true? No. Um, the majority of women that I see are doing something to prevent pregnancy. They may not be doing it well, you know, they may not understand completely the method that they're trying to use, they may not have the intellectual resources, the financial resources, the sort of support to use a method effectively. So for example, um, you know, a woman may be taking the pill, um, but she may work shifts, she may um, live on the street, she may live in an abusive situation where she has to hide the taking of the pill. And so inadvertently she may miss taking a pill, she may um, take it at different times of the day because her life is chaotic and that's the best she can do. And so the method fails. Um, but I would say that by far, and statistically we know that by far the majority of women are doing something mm -hmm. to prevent pregnancy mm -hmm. as best they can. Mm -hmm. You know, um, something that I often say to women is that birth control methods aren't perfect. There's a failure rate for every method. There's mm -hmm. not a single method except probably abstinence mm -hmm. that um, will be effective even if you use it perfectly 100% mm -hmm. of the time. So I often say, you know, birth control methods aren't perfect and people aren't perfect, mm -hmm. you know. It's quite a task we ask women to do if you think that often around age 13 or 14, women have the potential mm -hmm. to become pregnant and they can continue that until their age, you know, 52, mm -hmm. 53. So if we, you know, try to do that math again, you know, we're asking women for 35 years mm -hmm. to do something on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I don't know about you, but I can have a week's worth of antibiotics and have mm -hmm. a hard time remembering mm -hmm. to take all the doses at the right time. And so it's an incredible task we're asking women to do, even under the best of circumstances. Um, and so, you know, birth control methods aren't perfect, people aren't perfect, and in this life that we lead, shit happens. Mm -hmm. And that's, and I often say that to mm -hmm. women because they feel this incredible guilt and responsibility. You know, one of the most common things that women say in our clinics is, you know, everyone here is so nice. I didn't think it would be like that. Mm -hmm. You know, women come expecting to be judged. Mm -hmm. They come believing that they're in this situation because of some deficiency uh, on, mm -hmm. on their part that, um, and that people have a right to judge them and mm -hmm. will judge them. Mm -hmm. And so they're surprised when mm -hmm. people treat them well. Yeah. What a sad kind of reflection, yeah. what kind yeah. of sad situation. But, but nevertheless, it is really common that mm -hmm. women feel that way, mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah.
you're a Buddhist practitioner. And, yeah. and you've, you've really invested in this practice. Mm-hmm. And the core of this practice is nonviolent. Mm-hmm. That's the doorbell. Um, the core of this practice is nonviolence. Mm-hmm. Uh, not having the intention to cause harm. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. How, how do you um, put that together in your, in your heart? Yeah. You know, on, on paper, on, you know, at face value, in some ways there's no reconciling it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't live up to mm-hmm. all the precepts in the work that I do. Mm-hmm. If one considers doing no harm, mm-hmm. non-killing, in its literal sense, then, you know, I'm not, I'm not living up to the precepts. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I think that, and you know, people, Buddhists far wiser than I, um, are able to look at individual situations um, and, and understand that there are, there are circumstances that allow one to hold all of these things at one time. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I feel like in a way, the way women are doing the best they can, I'm doing the best mm-hmm. I can. Mm-hmm. I'm holding a principle or a value that is really important to me, mm-hmm. that I try to think about in my life in as many ways as I can. And I'm holding a commitment excuse me, a commitment to um, supporting and honoring women and families mm-hmm. in the best way that I can. So I don't have, I, I, I can't reconcile mm-hmm. it really. Mm-hmm. I can't, you know, do, do sort of fancy footwork mm-hmm. to kind of get around it or say, mm-hmm. I, I just really, I've had to come to a place of feeling like I can hold more than one principle mm-hmm. at one time, mm-hmm. even when they're conflicting. Mm-hmm. The other piece of this practice is mindfulness and generosity and that skill that we learn to really bear witness to our own suffering and other people's experience. Mm-hmm. Not just suffering, but joy and complexity mm-hmm. and contradiction and mm-hmm. uh, the mess of what happens in our own minds when we're sitting still. Mm-hmm. But also how complicated it is to have someone in your office and all the conditions that brought them there. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering if you could say something about how the formal practice of meditation has um, uh, influenced your work. Mm -hmm. And I mean the work of actually showing up and being there uh, in the procedure. Yeah. Um, You're a surgeon Mm -hmm. in a way, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I am. Um, So how how has the practice practice helped you? Well, I guess, you know, I I would say that interestingly enough, my practice actually really um, allowed me to 
focus on this ethical dilemma in a way differently than I had in the past. Mm -hmm. When I first started, as I mentioned, you know, it was kind of shocking what I was doing. It was shocking to look at it. It was shocking to actually realize what I was doing. But I kind of got over that mm -hmm. somehow. We'll just say I got over that. Mm -hmm. And it probably wasn't until I started and had developed a formal practice that I actually looked at that with mm -hmm. more, um, with a clearer eye, with a allowing for the nuances, for the, the discomfort that came up as mm -hmm. a result of that. So the practice actually helped me or required me in some ways to really look at and understand more fully what I was really mm -hmm. doing at a, at, a, at a whole different sort of level. Yeah. But then as a, as a daily go to my office, meet a woman, I'm in the operating room, um, the, the practice has really influenced what I do. Um, so I have a, a practice, a routine. Um, if you can imagine, if I do 20 procedures in a day, I do them fairly quickly. I don't spend all that much time with any single woman. I read their chart. I chat with them about their decision about what's going to happen. And then the way the rooms are set up in various clinics, I have an opportunity. I actually usually turn my back as I put on gloves and prepare to start the procedure. And I always stop and take a few mindful breaths. And I do that with the intention of for sure arriving fully with that patient so that I'm there, I'm paying attention, I'm not thinking about the fact that there are 10 other patients or what happened with the last patient, mm -hmm. that I'm, I'm really quite there with them. And the other intention with that is to really open my heart to what will transpire between us mm -hmm. because even though the procedure is only a few minutes, four or five minutes to do, that four or five minutes for that woman may be emotionally quite difficult, mm -hmm. may be um, physically, may be painful, she may have emotional reactions to that. And if I am there and I am mindful and I am open, it's so much easier for me to support her to not be mad at her. So if she starts wiggling, which makes it harder for me, which makes me think, oh my God, something bad's gonna happen. Instead of saying, you know, stop that right now. Mm -hmm. I'm really much more able to just be mm -hmm. there with her. And, and the language that I use. So mm -hmm. for instance, a woman may come in, she's very anxious. She is worried that it's gonna really hurt. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I'll sometimes say is, you know, it may be uncomfortable. What I'd like you to do is kind of open to the possibility that whatever it is, you'll be able to manage and that we're here to support you with that. It will pass. So all of the, you know, impermanence, um, impermanence yeah, the, exactly. Mm -hmm. And the sort of notion that you have within you, what it will take to get yourself through this. Mm -hmm. And some of that I probably did before anyway. Mm -hmm. But now it's much clearer to me, and I can do it with intention. So if mm -hmm. someone is, is going, you know, 
way off into another place of fear related to some other experience in her past, I'm really able to kind of say, let's just stay here for the moment. Let's mm -hmm. just take, and I'll, and I'll say, let's take a couple of breaths together. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going to start, you let me know, you know, what's happening. You know, mm -hmm. it will pass, we'll be done. Mm -hmm. um, and so in very practical ways, um, things that I've learned, you know, to do in my own practice, this sort of, uh, the teachings on impermanence have really had a very practical, mm -hmm. a very practical application for mm -hmm. me. Um, and if I get into a difficult situation, if I'm into a difficult case, um, either because of a challenging um, sort of surgical situation, I mean, I just absolutely use the breath. Mm. I absolutely just come into myself, and um, it, it is incredibly helpful. And I suspect that my complication rates have mm -hmm. decreased as a result of this. I, today, I, I was teaching a resident, and he had a little complication, and I was saying, you know, well, complications occur, and you have to be able to, you know, try to sort out what's... Um, what's happened and you know an important thing is to be honest with yourself mm -hmm. and and so I gave him the example of when I started practice mm -hmm. and realized that what the difference was when I was fully there mm -hmm. fully paying attention mm -hmm. in every moment mm -hmm. not starting out and you know an abortion not mechanical it's not mechanical like. that's exactly it's more right immediate. it is i mean yeah. you know it's a so when you say complication it doesn't mean accident it means there no, is no. a complication yes but how you respond to it uh changes whether um that complication is going to get progressively worse or it can be caught quickly that's right so the rate goes down because you're you're there, you're there. Yeah. and it may not even occur Right. Because, you know... You can I, catch something earlier exactly. on. Exactly. I mean, I looked back and thought about complications I'd had and, and where things actually went wrong. Not just yeah. they might have gone wrong, mm -hmm. but they did go wrong. Yeah. Something happened. Yeah. Um, I made a hole in a person's uterus, for instance. Right. Let's just, that's yeah. a complication that can occur. I suspect that those complications may have occurred in moments of lack of attention, that I'm doing something that I do 20 times a day, five days a week, four weeks a month. Mm -hmm. It's just routine, mm -hmm. and I am not paying complete attention. Yeah. And I don't know this you know, for a fact, yeah. because I can't go back to those times, mm -hmm. but I suspect um, that some of those things may have happened in a moment of mm -hmm. inattention. And mm -hmm. I mean, I, I wouldn't... I wouldn't want anyone to think I was a bad doctor and mm -hmm. I'm sitting there daydreaming because <laughs> I don't think that's yeah. not what I'm, it's, it's no, much more subtle than that. Uh -huh. But um, I think that that kind of capacity to really pay attention, to really be there, also mm -hmm. really helps me, you know, a, a challenging opening of the cervix dilation, a challenge. And if I'm really there and I'm breathing and I'm focusing, I can feel my way through a difficult situation yeah. in a way different than if it's a mechanical thing. Right. You know. This is the protocol. This is what it, you this do. This is next. how you do it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the last thing I, I want to ask you is... Um, 
In primarily in the Zen tradition. But you know, actually, if you go earlier to the time of the Buddha, the Buddha made his robes out of, um, there's a whole list of what you can make robes out of, but they were garments that nobody could use for anything else. Maybe they uh, were menstruated on. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, what's been discarded becomes sacred or brought back. Um, people, I would say, like Bernie Glassman, have done work taking discarded people, the people who we've thrown out of our society, and brought them back in, mm-hmm. really by just giving them attention mm-hmm. and bearing witness to them. And all these possible lives that have um, been put into the trash and, you know, are back in the earth somewhere or they're burned or mm-hmm. um, whether you have an idea that this is a soul, a potential life, all that aside, mm-hmm. there is still something women have lost. Mm-hmm. And in some traditions in Zen, um, for example, they have a ceremony called water babies or the Jizo practice mm-hmm. where you acknowledge um, the kind of passing of a child, the passing of a potential life. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't really have any ritual like that mm-hmm. in our culture. No. Um, is it important? Um, is it something you've thought about? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, can, can you maybe comment on yeah, that? Yeah, I think you know it is important for some women. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't, it wouldn't be easy to say for this group of women or that group of women, mm-hmm. but clearly for some women, some sort of acknowledgement mm-hmm. of that past opportunity, that an honoring of, and, and you know, many women have made the best decision that they can for their family, for themselves, but not without conflict, mm-hmm. sadness, wishing that conditions were different than mm-hmm. they are and an honoring of that mm-hmm. and, and, and an acknowledgement that just like for me that this was no longer just a, um, a political I- idea mm-hmm. it, was, it was a clinical reality that yeah. I was ending a life yeah. and my having to come to terms with that women have to come to terms mm-hmm. with that mm-hmm. now you have a whole range of women who, who just don't think about that. They don't want to know about that. To women who, who have intention to have a ritual themselves. Mm-hmm. And so some women ask to take the products of conception away with them. Mm. So that they and can. can um, in most places yeah. they can. Mm-hmm. You know, they have to go through a mm-hmm. process and sign release mm-hmm. forms and, you know, mm-hmm. all the kind of shenanigans you know about in know hierarchical mm-hmm. medical situations but um, so so some women it's really important and it turns out that it's important for me too mm-hmm. so I have myself um, a few Jizu statues mm-hmm. and I, I have them at my workplace mm-hmm. and I have Again, when you work in the same place over and over, you have the ritual places where you are. Mm-hmm. When the procedure is done, I take the products of conception into another room to um, examine them. Mm-hmm. 
and then to put them into the jar that they go away mm. to the lab in. And in there, I have a statue. Mm. And I don't go through saying a prayer. I don't mm. go, um, I don't have a particular um, thing that I say or do. But when I start in the morning, I do have an acknowledgement mm. that, I, that I say. Mm. Um, and when I finish at the end of mm -hmm. the day, I have, and, and it's, you know, it's a very easy, not a, mm -hmm. um, not a highly religious or mm -hmm. just an acknowledgement mm -hmm. of what has happened in that day mm -hmm. and to those lives that have not mm. not had an opportunity to mm -hmm. so it, I think it is and it is important for some women we don't have you know with miscarriage for instance yeah. for um, you know spontaneously losing a pregnancy for years there was no acknowledgement for women that that mm -hmm. might be an emotional yeah. that, that they would have yeah. any attachment to that pregnancy and um, and those women um, with the help of you know advocates of all sorts have I think move toward changing that and now mm -hmm. there is real a much better acknowledgement mm -hmm. that women may want an opportunity to hold the lost um, infant or to have to participate or mm -hmm. um, in um, some kind of ritual and there are groups for women mm -hmm. who have had um, uh, spontaneous pregnancy loss um, we don't really have that in abortion we certainly have people who are very skilled at seeing women after abortion mm -hmm. um, to help them with ongoing issues, with you know um, questions um, and support, but we don't really have any kind of formalized mm -hmm. rituals. And and I don't know what the uptake would be yeah. because people come with such different religious backgrounds sure. that I'm not I'm not sure what the uptake yeah. would be, but yeah. um, but there might be mm -hmm. there might be interest mm -hmm. in that mm -hmm. uh, for sure. Mm -hmm. This, this year we're going to have a ceremony at Center of Gravity called Oban. And what we do is we spend the day making lanterns mm -hmm. and then we paint on the lantern uh, the names or even the faces or any images mm -hmm. of people who we've lost. Mm -hmm. um, and then we go to a river mm -hmm. and then we light the candles and then we watch the lanterns flow down the river in mm -hmm. the evening and um, maybe this year we should uh, mention that if someone has had a miscarriage or sometimes there's death that we don't really acknowledge mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, or an abortion or maybe there would be a way that we could articulate that mm -hmm. where people might say oh yeah right mm -hmm. I don't think of that as death mm -hmm. you know, and have that as part of the ceremony I think it would be a great yeah. idea. I mean, mm -hmm. at Center of Gravity, mm -hmm. um, and in you know the mentorship program that mm -hmm. um, I'm in, um, there have been practitioners who've talked to me mm -hmm. about um, their own personal experiences mm -hmm. of choosing to end a pregnancy mm -hmm. and how what the impact was for them. Yeah. And and I think that there would be really, mm -hmm. um, you know, most people have um, been uh, affected by mm -hmm. a pregnancy loss of some sort. Mm. Um, you know, I think it's 40% of pregnancies are unintended. Mm. That's, that's a lot of... 40%? Mm -hmm. mm. mm -hmm. So 
a lot, it's affected and touched yeah. lots of people. Mm -hmm. I think it would be a great idea. Yeah. I would come. Okay. <laughs> You'll be invited. Okay. Well, thanks so much, um, the people who are watching via that camera and cord <laughs> and computer. Um, we'll probably have a lot to say about this. Yeah. yeah. So well, I'm certainly willing to, you know, to chat with folks who have yeah. specific, if they have questions or want mm -hmm. to enter into any kind of dialogue about okay. it, I'd be happy to do and, that. And if people want to communicate with you, they can email me. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. So thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. Okay. So, um, uh, Part of the uh, protocol in these videos is to finish with some homework. So uh, this week when you meet with your partner, uh, for 20 minutes, I want you to talk to your partner about the ways that you kill. So the question is, how do you kill? And to really take 20 minutes to speak with your partner about all the ways that you kill. Um, think about uh, eating, sourcing your food, um, what you purchase, what you consume, your relationship with time, and really contemplate uh, the, this kind of literal level of the precept of nonviolence and contemplate how you kill. And then your partner can have a turn for 20 minutes uh, speaking to you about this as you listen and then for 20 minutes have a conversation about what that was like uh, to explore that question. How do you kill? So, thank you. <laughs>